You are listening to the sermon audio of New Hope Community Church in Canaan, New Hampshire. For more information, visit our website at newhopecommunity.net. How many of you have ever seen the Emmy Award winning show Undercover Boss? So if you already have, you kind of know the premise of each episode, a president or CEO of a company goes incognito uh, to work along other employees of his to, or hers to see uh, what, what kind of job they're doing and also to learn as to what they think of that particular organization or company. Uh, as we continue our study in 1 Peter, if I were to rename 1 Peter 4 verses 7 through 11, I would call it Undercover Apostle. In other words, what Peter's been doing in chapters basically 2 through 4.11 is to say to us, here's what the Christian faith should look like when it's lived out. And he's shown us that perspective from the world, what it should look like in the world. But as you get to verses 7 through 11, it's as if Peter takes us now behind closed doors and says, what should the Christian faith look like? when it's lived out within the community of our brothers and sisters in Christ? What should it look like within the local church? Uh, so let's kind of follow Paul's, or excuse me, Peter's underground task here and, and see for firsthand what Christianity looks like. Notice in verse 7, as we turn to 1 Peter 4, verse 7, it says, The end of all things is near, Therefore, be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Uh, It may change your understanding a little bit of Peter's perspective if I were to tell you that verse 7 actually is worded somewhat differently. And that is the phrase, all things, should be at the front of the sentence. So it should read more like this. All things are near an end. All things are near an end. So a very comprehensive statement that Peter makes and then begins to say, if we understand that, then when it comes to how we conduct ourselves within the family of God, the Christian community should be known for its clear thinking. In other words, here's one of the traits that we should see within our relationships with one another a sense of clear thinking. So going back to verse 7, the word end means not termination, but completion of all things. So if we think of biblical history, there's a timeline, a beginning and a definite end that will conclude with Christ's return, a new heaven, a new earth, and we will reign with him forever and ever. So on that continuum, Peter is saying there will come a completion point. And it's important for believers to keep that completion point always before them. So every day that we live, this statement is being proven true. We are nearer to that completion point. But then you also see the the phrase that follows that, therefore, because of that perspective, we should be clear-minded. Some translations have sober-minded which conveys the correct meaning because the word clear-minded means to be the opposite of intoxicated. In other words, think of like spiritual sobriety here. 
that, that we have a very discerning picture of the times in which we live and the place in which God has put us and our purpose and work in the church. Uh, that we are clear-minded, sound thinkers. But then he also mentions that we need to not just be clear-minded, but also display within our fellowship self-control. Uh, that we're not a reactionary group in our relationships with each other. We, we display a self-control. And, and maybe it's better to almost think of that as a spirit control. That, that we're evidencing we are being led by the Spirit. As, as Paul so well puts it in the letter to the churches of Galatia. Uh, that we are spirit-led. And that's all an aspect of this sense of being clear-minded. But what exactly does that mean? Because he begins with this perspective, all things are, are near to an end. Well, maybe it would help for us to think first, a Christian should have a balanced perspective on life. And this should be evident in our fellowship and relationships together, that we both see the importance of this present life, of being faithful to our calling in this life, but we also are quick to anticipate and look forward to what is to come. In other words, we balance well the perspective between what is now and what is not yet. And you can scan the pages of church history and see this was often a struggle for, for many believers. Sometimes they were so anxious about Christ's return that they began to neglect their responsibilities in this life. And then you have the other extreme, where some would so focus on this life, failing to realize you're, you're to be investing in the kingdom here for what awaits you in eternity. So Peter says, balance, clear-minded means you, you have both those perspectives in your life. And so as you, as you think about that, notice Peter's repeated concern for that in his writings. So if you just go a little bit further in the New Testament, look with me at 2 Peter 3 and verses 10 and 11. So many times you know you can generate interest if you say to someone, well, next week we're going to talk about prophecy or we're going to talk about the book of Revelation. And that tends to generate some excitement, some interest, and there, there's a good place for that. But I sometimes wonder within the larger Christian community, we've lost sight of the purpose of studying prophecy. In, in other words, it's, it's not meant to pique our curiosity, uh, but it is intended to be very practical. So if you look with me at 2 Peter chapter th 3 and verses 10 and 11 in a section on what's going to happen when the Lord returns, Peter says this, but the day of the Lord will come like a thief. The heavens will disappear with a roar, the elements will be destroyed by fire, and the earth and everything in it will be laid bare. Since everything will be destroyed in this way, what kind of people ought you to be? You ought to live holy and godly lives. There you have Peter's clear-mindedness, saying keep that end in mind, but realize knowing that end and what Scripture tells us is intended to practically affect your life now. Note how he said that. Knowing these things, what does that mean right now, 
here and now. It means you are to live holy and godly lives. That's clear-mindedness that should mark us as believers in the Lord Jesus Christ in our conversations and interaction with one another. But then if you go back to 1 Peter chapter 4, you'll notice in that seventh verse, the end of that verse says, what are the results of being clear-minded, sound-minded? And at the end of the verse, he says, you need to be clear-minded and self-controlled so that you can pray. Peter is a big proponent on reminding us of the importance of prayer. Is Peter actually saying that as believers, if we don't have this clear perspective, if we're not clear-minded, that it's going to negatively impact our prayer life? I believe he is saying that. And we've already seen earlier in this letter, Peter has said, if, if in a marriage, in a relationship, uh, that there's not a Christ likeness there, that's going to hinder your prayer life. So why would we not think other areas of relationships, both outside with unbelievers, as well as within the house of God, among us ourselves, that if those things aren't in alignment, that it will have an impact on our prayer life. So Peter says here, being clear-minded, one of the results is you will have a stronger prayer life. And I don't think he means just individually in your own prayer closet, but when we gather together as believers to pray. So the culture of a church must reflect not just clear thinking, but we see a second mark that Peter references in verse 8. We must always strive to act in love. Verse 8 says, Above all, love each other deeply, because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this is very basic, straightforward teaching. Maybe sometimes so basic that even within the church, we can lose sight of its significance and application. And so to dwell on that verse a little bit more, you have simply the word love, which is the term agape, which implies a, an action that's motivated by the will, not by one's emotions. So in other words, we have been commanded to love each other. We've been made one in Christ. That would tell you this is not always easy to apply, to live out, but we are to based on the Word of God, act in love towards one another. Not, not based on how you're feeling. Do you like that person or not and their personality? Uh, what did they just do to you? And that's going to counter what you respond or do back to them. But no, what, what are you going to do as an act of the will to demonstrate love? And keep in mind, this is behind closed doors Peter's talking about. He's talking about the church here, not, not the world out there, but, but Christ's church. And so as you start to think about that, notice he says in that verse again, uh, you are to love each other deeply. This adjective means resolutely, which would go along with this is a decision you make out of your love for Christ. You will do it resolutely. You will do it 
eagerly. This should characterize the relationships within the body of Christ. And we don't have to go far to realize the preeminence of love that's talked about in the scriptures. So one example would be, look with me in the book of Deuteronomy, a portion of scripture that you know is the law. And you might think, well, since it's the law, it's just regulations, uh, dry teaching. But yet, even within the leadership of Moses and the word of God, he's to deliver the people. You have the preeminence of love. Deuteronomy chapter 10 and verses 12 through 13. As you set this book within its context, you have God's people are getting ready to go into the promised land. Joshua will lead them, but the book of Deuteronomy is literally a repetition of the law to them. Yeah, here's one final shot. Moses will remind the people, what does God expect from them? And so we should listen with keen attention here. If it's repeated, it must be important. And so notice in Deuteronomy chapter 10, verses 12 through 13, says, Now Israel, what does the Lord your God ask of you? But to fear the Lord your God, to walk in all his ways, to love him, to serve the Lord your God with all your heart and with all your soul, and to observe the Lord's commands and decrees that I am giving you today for your own good. Now notice in particular in those list of verbs, to, to love him. And then it says to obey his decrees and commands. So that would include certainly the Ten Commandments. And if you think of how the Ten Commandments are generally organized, you have a grouping of the first four deal with your relationship with God. Five through ten deal with your relationship with one another. And in there is the preeminence. You love God and you love God one another. Jesus would certainly reaffirm this when he would say, you can summarize the law and the prophets this way. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, strength, and mind. And you can probably fill in the rest. And your neighbor as yourself. Was not Christ emphasizing the preeminence of love, but not from a worldly perspective but from what divine love looks like, experienced in our lives, and then transmitted through us in our relationships with one another in Christ. But it's that aspect that Peter's picking up on, on the New Testament love displayed in Christ that is a pardoning love, that that should be evident and on display in relationships between brothers and sisters in Christ. Because again, go back to 1 Peter chapter 3 and the rest of verse 8 there. Remember, this is the same disciple who we know denied Christ, but when you have Jesus rise from the dead, you have one of the angelic messengers says, make sure you go tell the other disciples and Peter. And what, what a, a personal glimpse that Peter had of Christ's pardoning love. Not, not just tell all the other disciples, but, but make sure. The one who probably needed to hear it the most would hear it. 
And so notice in 1 Peter chapter 4 and then the rest of verse 8, above all, love each other deeply because love covers a multitude of sins. Now, this is a takeoff from Proverbs 10 and verse 12. And if you were to read Proverbs 10, verse 12, it sets the contrast even a little more sharply. In Proverbs 10, it says, what hatred does is stirs up dissension and love covers sin. So you have two opposite pictures, one that wants to bring it right to the forefront, put it on public display, put it out on Twitter, uh, where love literally seeks to, to bury it or conceal it. Now, this is not saying among Christians we should avoid confronting sin. It's not saying that at all. But it's reminding us this is what agape love looks like in the body of Christ. We don't parade or seek to parade the, the weaknesses of one another, uh, the personality issues that maybe sometimes rub us the wrong way. We, we actually, in love for Christ, seek to conceal those things. In, in other words, it would be saying here that what should mark the relationship between believers in a church is we do everything possible to promote the unity of one another in Christ and to seek to respond in a godly way to any potential behavior or attitudes that might destroy or hinder that unity. And so let's say, for example, I find myself maybe greeting someone every time I see them in church and I don't get much of a response back. Should I then conclude, well, I've, I've tried a couple times. They're not, you know, responding back. That's it. Well, that really wouldn't be motivated by love. I should want to do everything possible to promote a sense of unity. And I can't and you can't change another person's heart. That's the work of God. But we can be faithful in displaying love, which is exactly what Peter is saying here. This is a pardoning love. You've received it and you've been blessed by it. And New Testament love means we respond in a way to, to seek to cover those sins, those issues, maybe more accurately those personal offensive things, that we sometimes encounter in a spirit of unity and in love. Now, I don't think it takes long for many of us to realize, yeah, that's what the church should evidence, but how often it does not. And we each know people who would say to you that's their reason why they don't go to church, because they haven't seen that. They haven't experienced that. And there is a sense in which they are partly correct, I fear. That they haven't seen what they should have seen. And so Peter reminds us of this love. But then he gets very practical. He's not just some theoretician who's presenting some lecture. But he says, let me give you an example of what this would look like. And so you see in verse 9, he brings up an example of love within the body of Christ. And that is hospitality. And so in verse 9, he says, Offer hospitality to one another without grumbling. Uh, now, 
Peter has used this word hospitality earlier in the book, but you probably wouldn't recognize it because earlier it's rendered strangers. Because hospitality literally does mean um, welcoming strangers. And, and so in Peter's day, you could look at this two different ways here. One is that you had many Christians who would be traveling through to another destination. Maybe they were itinerant preachers. Uh, maybe they were Christians who had been persecuted from one place and are traveling en route. Uh, and they were dependent on other Christians to take them in and provide food, shelter for short term. But I think in this case, Peter is moving beyond that. Well, how you respond to literally strangers to saying, how do you respond to one another who are your brothers and sisters in Christ, who you know? Do you extend to them hospitality? Uh, and, and not just simply inviting them into your home. That's certainly one, one way of displaying hospitality. Uh, but do you offer, do you ex express kindness to them? and how you greet them? Uh, do you look at ways maybe throughout the week that you can somehow maintain contact with them, relationships with them, to, to show your concern, to show your love, to show that in Christ you are invested in their life? And notice this it has to be motivated by love because he then says, you have to do this without grumbling. So right away we realize what happens when you maybe say, all right, I have to apply this. And then you have someone over or you try to greet someone and it doesn't come out like you think. And you're like, well, that was a waste of time. Or, gee, it was nice having them over, but they stayed so long. Or, Could they have left earlier? What have you just done to the exercise, the display of hospitality? You've ruined it by your motives, by your reasoning. And so in Peter's day, this was a very critical need among believers. But I would argue it is no less critical today in a very impersonal world, in a world where people are used to maybe someone doing something nice for them, but always expecting something in return. That, that we should be a church, we should be believers, that this characterizes us. We, we extend hospitality to one another. And there are countless ways that you can do that, whether it be on a limited income, whether it be throughout the week with the privilege now you have of you know, emailing, texting, other things. There's plenty of ways to keep in touch. Uh, not that those should remove the personal element, but I think there are ways that we can begin to move forward in that regard. Origen, a Christian theologian and scholar in the second century, in speaking on the issue of hospitality, said to those who are listening to him, this is one of those areas where there is a big gap between preaching and practice. And I don't think from the second century to today, we've made necessarily tremendous improvement in that area. That we could say the same thing. No one would sit here and say, well, Christians shouldn't offer hospitality. We would be like shaking our heads, of course they should. We, we love each other in Christ. 
but often in practice it's neglected or it's left to a few in the church uh, that we are content to have them do it on our behalf. But Peter is not quite done because he has one more item to call every believer out on. And that's in verses 10 and 11. And that is, we should serve our brothers and sisters in Christ. That we're not just clear-minded. We have a right perspective on the present and the future. We're not only acting in love, but out of that love, we're committed. We're all in to serving one another. So you notice in verse 10, he says, each one. So no exception here. You can't read that and say, well, Peter's not referring to me. Uh, he's saying, you're a Christian. You have a body you belong to. Each one should use whatever gift he has received to serve others, faithfully administering God's grace in its various forms. So this is the subject of spiritual gifts, these spiritual endowments abilities that God gives only his children to use in a way to promote and benefit the growth of their brothers and sisters in Christ in the church. Uh, and you can read Romans 12, 1 Corinthians 12, Ephesians 4, if, if you want to get a broader understanding of what some of those particular gifts include. Uh, but you notice here, Peter's point is that every Christian should be faithfully discovering and using their gift or gifts within the body of Christ. And as he puts it, faithfully administering God's grace. Uh, a little bit more literal translation is as stewards of God's grace. And that kind of conveys the picture of one who is an administrator or overseer of something that does not rightfully belong to them. It's been given to them, but they have a responsibility to oversee it and administer it. So if you're an office administrator, the office does not belong to you. The building does not belong to you. But you oversee those things, understanding you are accountable to someone for how you do those things. And that's exactly what Peter is saying here to those who would understand this in terms of household servants and says, you're God's stewards. You've been given these gifts. Use them. And even though he does not say this, the stewardship part would be implied. Use it because you will have to give an account one day. How did you use those spiritual graces and gifts God gave you in the body of Christ? They should be used for the benefit, the spiritual benefit of our brothers and sisters in Christ. But then he also adds to that in verse 11, the reminder that we are to use these gifts and everything about us to glorify God. Verse 11, he says, if anyone speaks, he should do it as one speaking, the very words of God. If anyone serves, he should do it with the strength God provides so that in all things God may be praised through Jesus Christ. To him be the glory and the power forever and ever. Amen. And even though Peter only sort of touches on two particular areas, serving and speaking, you could make a case that those two things cover the exercise of all the gifts 
because in some way they involve maybe speaking, teaching, words of encouragement, uh, gifts of helps, hospitality, other gifts like that would fall under the realm of, of serving gifts that, that literally are, are labor-intensive gifts for the benefit of others. So Peter is saying here, you want to know what this serving looks like? It ultimately is in, in all that you say and do, you do it for this purpose. And so he, he sort of concludes this heart of his letter in verse 11 with a very fitting and appropriate doxology. To, to him be the glory and the power forever and ever. And that is what we should ultimately want to see in each of our relationships with one another. As we live out these traits by God's grace, perfecting them, strengthening them for the glory of God. So you may be thinking, well, what are the chances that an undercover apostle would come into this house and evaluate us? And to be honest, you're all thinking, that's not going to happen. The apostles all died. And you're exactly correct. But need I also remind you, we are told in Scripture, we have one greater than that, that walks in our midst. The Spirit of God, who assesses and looks at the character of his church and walks among us. So knowing that, how well do you and, and, and do I reflect what Peter is saying here should characterize us as brothers and sisters in Christ. Let's pray. Our Father in heaven, these words are not just true, uh, they are troubling. And so we ask for your forgiveness where we have fallen short. We pray for your grace to strengthen us, that the God who will provide us with strength would work out these things in each of us as we learn to trust and to be obedient to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.